ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of the Fundamism Podcast. I'm your host, speaker, and master of shenanigans, Paul Long. But of course, this probably isn't your first rodeo. You know that, or you wouldn't be tuning in. I got uh, I got the goods for you today, man. I mean, like, there are a few people in this world that just get me hype that I feel like we're related, but yet unrelated. And we're featuring one of these gentlemen here today. But before I introduce him to you, we'd like to shout out our sponsor, Charlie Hustle. Charlie Hustle has been with us from the jump. They are just a tremendous, tremendous asset to the Kansas City community and all surrounding areas. So if you don't own a Charlie Hustle shirt or sweatpants or a mask or socks or anything amazing that Charlie Hustle produces, then you maybe you should do yourself a favor and go to charliehustle.com to learn more. So we are, of course, the Fundamism Podcast, and we like to empower individuals and organizations to create more of what's good as opposed to what isn't. And today, we got a whole lot of what's good. Now, this gentleman, he's got stories galore. He always makes me laugh. If you guys are familiar with John Stoner, the other cat suit guy, the gentleman that's been my best friend in all walks of life since the fifth grade, I learned that John had a cousin years and years and years ago. And his cousin, coincidentally, is named Mr. Brian Long. No relation to Paul Long, although we share so many connections. Ladies and gentlemen, the national sales manager, director, national sales manager of Autobach, my guy, Brian Long. What's good, brother? What's going on? Good to see you, Paul. Man, dude, it's been a while. Last time I saw you in person, you actually brought me in or you advocated to bring me in as a speaker for your national sales conference at Autobach. And I am forever grateful, my friend. So it's good to see you in person once again. I mean, virtually, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think we try to get you back the next year and we we uh, spoke a little late. So yeah. we need to do it again for sure. For sure, man. I was, uh, I was booked up. You know, listen, I'm in high demand. You know, just ask absolutely. me. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I'm in high demand until I'm not, my friend. So, uh, Brian, you know, we, we do like to empower individuals to create more of what's good. And right now, as I'm sure you're well aware, uh, with so many workforces being virtual, so many individuals, you know, worrying about the social divide or uh, the political landscape or you know, whatever is going on in your specific world, we tend to focus more on what's not good as opposed to what is. So, my brother, what is good in your day today? Man, um, Paul, I would say what 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 I have the most fun with right now is family. Like, so uh, I got three boys, seven, four, and three, and we're constantly wrestling. We're, uh, you know, I, I get them on the mats with me, um, and uh, we built a garden last weekend. Uh, so these little family activities, I'm really digging right now, especially with the pandemic. I think it brought things back a little bit into your home and we've made the best of that. And then, uh, and then honestly, any social activity right now, getting out, being with friends, like there's a, there's an exclamation point on everything that we do socially right now, because I haven't that taken away from us for, uh, you know, over a year. And so getting back out in Texas, we're pretty much mask free. And I'm loving it, uh, just getting out, having fun. Uh, you mentioned John Stoner. He was down last weekend, so we tore it up on a Friday night. Amber, John, me, uh, my sister Kelly, and uh, and, and roamed around Dallas uh, just causing trouble and 
Uh, and so, man, uh, there, there, there's a lot good right now, for sure. For sure. You're always an individual that I have seen in a very small sample size. And what I mean by that is it's amazing. Like, obviously, you and John are related, but you've always been or have been down in Texas for quite a long time. And you guys have, have been separated uh, logistically for quite a long time. So I never really got the opportunity to hang out with you. So our interactions outside of, you know, one or two meetings in person have typically been via text or now virtually or email. And uh, when I got the call to work at Autobach with you or partner with you at that national sales conference, I was like, dude, how the hell did I deserve this? Like, we obviously don't know each other super well, but we keep tabs on each other in this space. So I say all that to say that I connect with you in terms of all the things that you just defined, family, uh, social connections. You're very great at that, at making the most out of situations, typically making individuals laugh and being very lighthearted, which brings us to our featured fundamental today. For those of you guys listening, I have been working diligently to try to incorporate more of very specific and practical tips that you can apply to your day to improve your quality of life. And that brings us to today's features, fun, featured fundamental, which is differentiate yourself. So in this age of social media, which you and I connect on a lot, Brian, uh, dank memes, of course, and uh, uh, all your, all your uh, jujitsu posts, um, that's how a lot of people connect these days. And as such, I find, and I would love your take on this, that so many people are presenting themselves to be something, right? They're they're putting the shine on themselves while not always revealing their true authentic self. What's your general take on that? Not just in social, but just out and about in the workplace and, and all of that good stuff. Yeah. So authenticity, uh, uh, my take on authenticity in general. Yeah. it just the, the society that we live in right now where it seems as though there aren't a lot of people that are willing to be vulnerable and differentiate themselves in the space specifically, Brian, because they're always trying to show everybody what they got, right? We're, yeah. we're, we're trying so hard to be like everybody else on social because it looks cool that we're not really owning who we are authentically and thus not differentiating ourselves from the masses. So are you experiencing that? Do you feel the same way? What does that look like in your workspace and personal life? Yeah. I mean, uh, for work in, in work, for sure. There's always going to be the guys that, that, uh, you know, I, I call it toxically ambitious. You know, they, they, they are willing to do anything and everything to get to the top. And, and a lot of it is, uh, you know, either doing the cliche, taking, taking, you know, taking, uh, um, credit for things that they didn't necessarily do. Um, I don't, I, I stopped focusing on these type of people and, and really focused on what I'm doing and, and my, my approach, which, uh, I, I do, I pride myself on being authentic at work and, and it is a slow, it's a slower ride to the top, right? Cause you're, you're basically creating a foundation at every level to try to get there. And, uh, and the nice part is there's, you're not dropping too far. If you don't, if you, if you pursue things outside of your, you know, your expertise or, or your experience. Um, personally, uh, I, I think it just, I think there's a big movement right now for authenticity. Uh, we've seen it in a lot of different areas, like the, the anti-Photoshop movement. Um, uh, for me, there's just something golden about someone that, that, uh, that uh, puts it out there, willing, willing to be, like you said, vulnerable, 
Yeah. And, um, and there's, that's, it's a skill. It's a skill for sure. And, uh, and some people want that, want the attention and then you meet them and it's kind of like, uh, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know about this. This isn't the false advertising. Yes. It, you know, uh, I love, so first of all, I wrote this down. Uh, that's how important it was to me. <laughs> I remember that you said it just like in the movies, toxically ambitious. I love that term. Um, and, it, and it's just all about that ladder, that, that ladder climb to the top. And I'm going to do whatever it takes to get there. And what's interesting and what I took away from everything that you said is when you are truly genuine and authentic in your own self, you don't ever have to remember who you are or who you presented yourself to be. And so while it may be a slower crawl to the top, uh, the fall is a lot less dramatic because you're so consistent in being who you are that people have come to expect that. So what's interesting about this whole take, you know, personally and professionally, people, people see me oftentimes, Brian, this is probably not news to you and say this, this can't possibly be real. Like, like you can't, this guy is so over the top or, you know, he, he's always in your face. It, it's gotta be, it's gotta be a shine. Like it's gotta be a role that he plays. And Truth be told, man, like the stuff that I do is not necessarily for everybody else. The stuff that I do is for me. I have yep. so much fun, you know, wearing today I'm wearing, you mentioned wrestling around with the boys. I wore this for you, brother. If you smell. So I got a, the rock. Uh, it's so cold Steve Austin on my shirt today. And I, I freaking, I, this shirt brings me memories. Yeah. It reminds me of a time that Stoner and I connected and we were talking mess on each other and playing the role of the rock. And, and so generally speaking, while I have bad days, oftentimes I am this. And I think you could probably yeah. attest to that. Yeah, absolutely, man. Absolutely. It's, it's unfortunate though, Brian, because so many folks, I would say and argue, many folks don't even remember or know who they are because yeah. they've been playing a role for so long. So speaking of playing roles, uh, you're, an, you're a, a gentleman that has always found great strength in sports. Uh, it played a, a, a pivotal role in your growth and development. And uh, I, saw, <laughs> I saw an amazing interview recently and this gentleman was talking about sports figures being role models. And he said, uh, careful who you portray as a role model because a lot of models out here are playing roles. Uh, and that really like hit me like a ton of bricks. But it, it takes us to this conversation with you about your come up, specifically being in athletics and very active and almost, I would say, dominant in a very specific sporting uh, practice. What was that sport for you and what role did it play in your development? Yeah, and and I don't know if I, I appreciate the the dominance, uh, uh, you know. Shout out. Um, I don't know if I would go there, but I def. So jujitsu is is a sport that I've been involved in uh, for since two thousand one. I started in November of two thousand one, and uh, I would say that that's turned into like a personal, uh, a per very personal competitive thing for me. And so, whereas in the beginning it was about beating other people. And then now it's like my instructor, Alan Shabaro says it's not. And I, and I think this actually came from his instructor, Chris Howder. It's, it's not who's best. It's who's, it's who's left. 
And so, uh, and I've experienced with all the injuries that I've experienced over the years, I've, I've come to really appreciate that comment. And, um, you know, I've had at this point five, uh, five surgeries with, with little minor things in between as far as shots and, uh, and, you know, MRIs and all this different stuff. Um, it's a rough sport, you know, and, um, I told my mom it's, it's, it translates to the gentle way. And so she reminds me every time I get injured that, uh, did you do that doing the gentle way? <laughs> and, and so, um, so it, it, now it's, it's staying healthy. It's teaching my boys. Um, and so it's, it's shifted. And I think, you know, going back to your comments about, uh, people knowing who they are, that changes, it changes over time. Cause like I went from a super ambitious, uh, guy that wanted to do this, wanted to be a professional fighter, wanted to be a professional jujitsu practitioner and, uh, had plans to open a school at one point. And, and that's shifted. Now it's what can I, how can I teach my boys this? How can I teach them not to make the same mistakes, not to get injured um, and to do this safely so that they can do it at at an older age like I plan to do? Mm. So maybe I overstepped. I I don't think so. I mean, to hear John say uh, that you were dominant, you were you you were you were on the upward transition. (laughs) uh, And then, of course, you you suffered some pretty significant injuries, but. Uh, so maybe we'll remove dominant and say highly competitive, right? Uh, I'd agree with that. Sure. Wouldn't you say that you were on you were on track to become a professional fighter had you not uh, found the injuries that you did? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there we go. I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> so, so talk to us about uh, that first injury that you had and. What were you doing? Were you in the ring? Do you recall what went through your mind? How did it all play out? Yeah, and you know, so you, you've had James Cross on the on the show a couple times, uh, and so he can he can tell you that injuries typically don't happen in the fights. I mean, very rarely do they. It typically happens in training. So you have to train so much for this sport. Uh, I, James is on a completely different level, mixed martial arts wise, uh, you know, to, he's at the top and, and just side note, I have so much respect for him. I consider him in the class of Donald Cerrone, as far as him taking fights on one to two week notice, uh, and coming out with a great attitude. Uh, so, uh, much respect to him. Um, but, uh, all my, all my injuries came from training. Um, I had, I started with a, a shoulder surgery that, you know, you feel invincible up until you get injured. And I'd never understood the guys that were injured in the gym. It is a bug. You catch the injury bug and it ha- I mean, it's, it's one after another. And so that, that was extremely humbling. Uh, but, uh, so I, I had my first injury around 25, had surgery and, and that was a slap tear, superior labrum, anterior through posterior on my right side. Um, after that, I came back to training uh, was, uh, competing mixed martial, mixed martial arts wise. Uh, I had, uh, fought Timmy means who's now a uh, top 10 UFC fighter. Um, and a couple other guys and uh, and then I injured my neck afterwards. So, uh, neck injury, I tried to prevent surgery for a long time, months and months, uh, and, uh, ended up having the surgery eventually. Um, but I, I probably got three or four shots in between then trying to put it off. Um, after that, I came back and I had just had Liam, my first son. 
And uh, shortly after, I, I think six weeks later, I was back on the mat training and I tore my pec. Mm. So like it was back to back. I mean, I was on the mat, I think six weeks. And you talk about like something that you love uh, taken from you. I, and that's the way I felt about it. I felt like something was stolen from me because this is something that I did four to five hours a day at one point. And, um, and so very disappointing. Um, and, and so I continued to train, uh, like very conservatively. I got back on the mount after the next surgery or after the, the pec surgery, it took about six months to seven months to repair and then got back out there and, uh, and trained well, much more cautiously, but I knew I would have to have a subsequent neck, neck surgery. So I had that. And, um, I think, yeah, I got tossed on my head, uh, and, and I cracked a Lushka joint, which I'd never heard of in, in my neck. Um, and that accelerated things. So I needed a second neck surgery. I did that. Now it's been about four years. I just turned 40 this year. So there's the, my, my aspirations, my aspirations have, have changed a little bit. Um, but I, uh, oh, I'm, I still train. Um, I still, I have a 10 by 10 in the, in the garage. I train, uh, with the school down here in Austin and, um, has some great training partners. I'm just my, the way that I, I think about it has changed. Mm. So something that you love was taken from you in those moments obviously you, you had significant aspirations and your livelihood was associated with those aspirations at the time. Cause I recall, and this was, this was probably post uh, many of those injuries. I mean, you were talking about getting into the supplement space and uh, you, you had all kinds of stuff going on. And so, so much of your livelihood was associated with the fight game. How did that mess with you mentally uh, in terms of, your fortitude and and how to get through it and and finding fundamentalism to to challenge that mindset and gravitate towards the things that lift you up. So I think the so I have a coin that I carry around with me and, and right now I left it at headquarters right now and I'm working from home today. But it says I'm more fati and it and it means love of fate, love where you're at, regardless good or bad, love where you're at. And I, I if there's one skill I have, I would say it's that emotional flexibility. Mm-hmm. to uh to look at different things and 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 know that it's that I can do things differently in my life there's a lot of other people that I can learn from uh that are super passionate about their thing and so you know when in, in preparation for this I asked I asked my wife and my son like what do I do for fun you know because I, I you, you don't think about that what do right. you do for fun and, um, and what, you know, my son, obviously he says, you know, wrestle with us and, and, uh, watch movies with us. And it's very, you know, c- central around him. Sure. And then, you know, my wife's like, you love to, you love to, to train. You love to be with family. Um, I, I love my work. I, I love, uh, I try to love everything that I do. And, um, and I think it comes back to that. Uh, Amor Fati is like love of fate. And, it, and it's regardless of the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my, the guys that I like to read uh, is uh, Joshua Waitzkin. He's in, uh, he wrote the art of learning and it, this guy is pretty incredible. He learned uh, jujitsu extremely fast. Uh, there's a movie about him called searching for Bobby Fisher. Cause oh, he learned, 
that that's about him. His dad wrote it about him mm. uh, because of his uh, his experience in chess. Like at age eight or something, he uh, he was competing with grandmasters and beating them. So he wrote this book. It's called Art of Learning, and it's how to learn fast. And um, and I've always been amazed with people that can can shift and learn other things. And uh, I think to sum it up, like jujitsu taught me how to learn because before that I wasn't really good at anything. I didn't really see myself as like a really good at one thing. And I learned this. I was like, Hey, I'm pretty good at this. And, and then I, I slowly learned the game and learned about it and, uh, and it became good, mm. you know, in my own, at least in my own mind. Sure. And in mine as well, because I never saw you fight. So you essentially are James Krause to me. You see, I'll take, I'll take <laughs> so uh, and shout out to James. Everything you said about him is is absolutely accurate. He is a world-class human being, which a lot of people don't get the opportunity to see. Uh, yeah. he, he is very bright when it comes to leadership skills and how to coach people up, as evidenced by the fact that he has a highly successful gym. Uh, Glory MMA, is, is it's got a lot of folks that, that are coming up through the UFC right now. So, you know... Uh, I see you two as very similar in terms of gravitating towards the things that are going to make you better, right? Yeah. Uh, finding these opportunity gaps and learning how to close them. And specifically, that kind of ties together with this fundamental of differentiate yourself. You said, I find myself somewhat good at being emotional, fle- emotionally flexible. And that's, I would say that that's not super common uh, these days, right? With everybody being so direct and assertive and opinionated and whatever it may be, when you find somebody that is very emotionally flexible, it sticks out like a sore thumb and does help differentiate your space. I got to believe that having that skill, being emotionally flexible has helped you in your professional career. Is that accurate? And if so, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, going back to vulnerability, I think that's a really important part of it. And, you know, when I interview other people, I'll ask the, you know, everybody asks the, what can you be better at or what's your weakness? And I usually ask that question three or four times in an interview to get like a real answer instead of like, hey, you know, I overwork and I don't, I, I don't delegate and this and that. But someone that's able to be truly vulnerable, uh, you know, wear a cat suit or uh, something like that, you know, you, you're you're saying basically I am confident myself in my ability to do my job or I'm confident myself in my ability to be, you know, as a person. Um, so I, when I look for candidates, I look for two things and that's, uh, that is intellectual curiosity. I want someone that is curious and that wants to learn the next thing. Um, and I look for grit and, uh, and I, I say grit is really emotional flexibility. Mm. Can you put up with, the the bullshit that's going to happen with your company or with your industry or with you know a coworker or with your family like if you can overcome these and focus on what you need to do to get your job done that task done or whatever you were trusted with uh, on behalf of your employer or your supervisor like I, that's that's all you could ask for from from a candidate and then you t- you can teach them all the skills that they need for that position those are all teachable but I find it really difficult to teach an adult emotional flexibility or grit. Mm. I, I very much agree. Um, Cause I, I, I think in general, we shy away from 
be vulnerable out of fear of acceptance or going back to the point earlier, the, uh, the, the toxicity piece, uh, toxically ambitious, we're afraid to show people that we're weak or that we have areas of opportunity because maybe then they won't promote us or they won't see us as a subject matter expert or find us credible or whatever it may be. Whereas what I believe, and based on what I'm hearing you say, Brian, I, I think that you probably feel the same way. When somebody is willing to be vulnerable or expose their true self, they resonate so much more with me. Uh, and I'm so more, so much more willing to invest in my, in them personally in our relationship than anybody that was just presenting themselves to be something. So let's talk about this emotional flexibility piece from a personal standpoint. You mentioned how you used to um, be big into jujitsu, and and we talked about how a lot of your livelihood was associated with that, and you had a lot of aspirations. The injuries happened, and you had to. You had to be emotionally flexible because you couldn't be as invested as you once were, knowing that if you did invest yourself, you could potentially get hurt again or lose something more that you love. My question is, knowing that you're a guy that just you go in like you see something and you want it and you, you, you put forth all of your effort and that grit and determination that you referenced. How the hell do you practice or train half-ass? How do you practice or train not at your peak performance level, knowing that you could potentially get hurt if you did? Yeah, that's it's a really good question. I, I think it goes back to re, I don't think it's uh, train. It's not training half-ass. Okay, it's it's <laughs> redefining. It's redefining the way that you train. So like. And, re and reframing it is it's it's all about perspective so uh octavio kuto jr is my uh was my professor uh is my professor uh along with alan shabaro uh octavio gave me my black belt and and i went to octavio and and, and he did he he reframed it for me and so i let him know that i was not no longer interested i was like hey i got it you know i'm having my my four surgery um you know i'm i i have to look at uh, starting another hobby. And I think I probably said it in jest, you know, like I need another hobby. This, this stuff's hurting. Mm -hmm. And, um, and he, uh, he said, no, 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 no. Like he said, jujitsu is this big. He goes, this is jujitsu. This is your game. This is what you play right here. And this is jujitsu. He's like, so you could play over here, over here. You could be here, here, here. And, and it really, this really resonated with me because at the time I had a really, smothering and aggressive style of jujitsu. I, I pressure passed. I, I did um, certain things that were very physical. And, and so for me, it was like, okay, take a step back. Look at these guys that don't train like me. Look at these guys that are, uh, and I've, I've always been kind of an awkward, awkward athlete. So that's, that's one of the reasons that ball sports, I'm like, no, you guys, I don't know you haven't seen me play basketball, but John has. And, uh, and so, um, so all these other sports were super difficult for me to jump into. And this like wrestling made sense to me. So I had a specific style and I had to take a step back and look at this from a different perspective. And, and I did, I started playing different games. I stopped inverting in my guard. I, I stopped pressure passing to, to, to the side that hurt my neck, you know, all these different things. And, and, uh, and I love the sport in a different way completely. Mm. You differentiated yourself. You started to reframe your, your, your mindset, 
And I'm sure that you have somewhat of a unique approach to training as well, kind of like or not unlike that of Mr. Tim Elliott, who has a very awkward approach to MMA, so much so that I think his handle is awkward MMA. Uh, So uh, did I ever tell you about the time or have you heard the story that I got into a fight with a UFC fighter and didn't die? No, no, but I really want to hear the story. (laughs) So... uh, it was one of a very few times that I was ever out on the town without John Stoner. And it was a, it was a, it was a couple's deal. There were four different couples. Uh, at the time it was, it was not my loving wife, Melissa Long, but rather another girl that I dated for a, a short period of time and three other couples, only one of which that I knew really, really well. And so uh, the gentleman uh, that I knew very, very well was a, a D2 athlete, a basketball player. He was like six, six, uh, 265, 270. I mean, he was just jacked. He was just a, a meatball, uh, athletic jacked. So we're in a, uh, we're in a bar. Um, we're in the basement and we're celebrating his girlfriend's 21st birthday. And she's drinking out and about for the first time in public. And, you know, as you could imagine, she's turning up, she's having a good time and things, things are getting a little, uh, squirrely because she's very flirtatious, right? And so I could see this dude like just getting madder and madder and madder, like the reds of his eyes, like I see it rising. And so I'm in the corner and all of a sudden I start hearing, you know, glasses flying and yelling and all this stuff. And I see that guy uh, tussling with, with somebody in the basement of the bar. And so, you know, things progress. And again, we're in the basement. I have to grab his girlfriend and put her on my shoulders like a, you know, I'm carrying her on my back to get her up the stairs and outside away from danger, away from harm. So as I get her up the stairs, I look on the inside of the bar and one of the guys from a couple, the couple that was with us that I didn't know is fighting a bouncer in the bar. I go outside and there is the six foot six dude, 265 Jack guy that is in the fetal position on the ground just getting bombed on by this bouncer that is, you know, he's a lot shorter and a lot smaller. So I walk over and I I put the, I put the girl down on the sidewalk and I go over and I, and I grab the bouncer on his, Hey, sir, get off, get off of him. You know, I'm not even drunk. Like I'm, I'm completely uh, in the moment and present and he won't, he's just going to town. So I kind of had to, you know, I, I, you know, I I hit him. Uh, And he, and he rolls off of, of my guy and my guy stands up immediately and bolts just, he's gone like into the darkness, like forest. Yeah. forest (laughs) So at that moment, these other two bouncers come out of the bar and they see me and uh, they proceed to push me down and say, you know, you need to get out of here. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. So that dude uh, bum rushes me. Uh, I remember being down on the ground. He he literally kickball style kicked me in the face, Brian. Wow. And I, I like an idiot. Like this is one of two fights that I've ever been in. Like an idiot, I get up and I rush him, and I got him. And you know we're tussling, and he's tussling on me. And it's it's you know it's it's just a tussle. I would say you know we can't really hit each other. All of a sudden, I get tackled from behind. And, uh, and your, your first instinct is to like, you know, get off me. Like what's going on fight or flight. And I hear stop resisting, stop resisting. <laughs> and, uh, 
I, I had this, this police officer that proceeded to just beat the crap out of me. I mean, and like at this point, the whole bar is out. And I remember many of you guys listening right now have heard this story before. So forgive the overlap if you have. But I remember being in a headlock down on the ground and the, the police officer's gun in his holster was just jabbing me in the eye as he was. It was like the most painful thing. I said, sir, sir, your gun, your gun, your gun. And uh, I, I, Brian, I'll never forget. I was standing or sitting rather in the middle of the street uh, in Brookside, hand, handcuffed behind my back, three other gentlemen handcuffed sitting down on the ground beside me. And I remember looking over to my left and the guy right next to me handcuffed had an earring that had come out of his ear and literally stuck in his cheek right here. Oh. I'll never forget that day. Fast forward, I go to farmers where I work uh, th- th- a couple days after. And side note, all the charges were dropped. Everything was fine. Uh, it's the only time I've ever been arrested up top. <laughs> uh, I worked with a guy at farmers that was uh, a bouncer and was best friends with this guy who was a UFC fighter by the name of Bobby Volker. And he was like, dude, you tussled with a UFC fighter and uh, he has a huge black eye. I don't know if you did it or the other guy did it, uh, but I'm just proud that you survived. (laughs) And that's true. I am proud that I survived as well. If there were no rules and Bobby uh, got me in any other space, he would literally kill me. But the one thing that I admire about what you do as a fighter, and this is part of the fight game, is recognizing that you could fight with anybody and just destroy us. But it's not about that. It's about, you know, broadening your mind and getting better as an individual. So what specifically did fighting do for you that helped prepare you for your professional career? Man, that's, uh, yeah, that, I love that question because it, it's done so much for me. So um, I think more than anything, it, it taught me how to learn, like just going back to, to what I said previously, like it taught me that I could. And, and when you're, when you start, you're not good. Like you think you're good. You have natural ability. Like I was a wrestler. And so I started, I could wrestle. Like, so I had this pressure thing going already, but there was these little, I mean, tiny guys like that wore glasses and like, you know, had the, had the you know, the, the straight part down the middle and, <laughs> And, and I'm, you know, you're looking at them just kind of like, you know, uh, they, they never played sports before and they were just wrecking shop. So like you go in and all of a sudden you're tied up, your arms in a different spot than you want it. Like you're tapping out. And then, and you know, when I got in, I was like 210 pounds maybe. And I lifted all the time. Like I said, I wrestled before. And, uh, when I, I fell in love with the sport at that moment that I was getting wrecked by these little guys and, I, I mean, I, I stopped working out with weights. Like I became fascinated by the sport. Um, and, and it showed me that I could learn anything to an expert level. And so like eventually athleticism, absolutely. You know, they say like the size doesn't matter. It absolutely does speed strength. It absolutely matters. But on an even, that's on an even playing field. If your level of jujitsu is higher than someone else's, then it does not, it doesn't help. Mm-hmm. And so uh, if anything, it fatigues you and wears you out. So I, I've learned how to, I think, how to think, how to learn uh, all these things. And then the different perspectives, like I said, you know, Octavio telling me uh, that, you know, your style is here, not necessarily, you don't have to define it as this. You can define it as this over here, or this. 
And I think that really hit home as far as my rigid thinking at that time, like, oh, well, I can do things differently, do the same things differently. And once I figure that out, I, I implement that implement that professionally as well. Like, I think that that's a, um, that's a big key. But more than anything, I think it goes back to wrestling, your work ethic. Like, I know you have to, you, you put the work in, in, in the gym. Um, when you're not working, like, you know, your competitor is, it's a one-on-one sport. You're locked in a cage. A lot of times, like in mixed martial arts, at least. Um, and these guys are competing at the same level that you are. They want to beat you just as much as you want to beat them. They're as confident going in. No one wants to get beat up in front of people. They're as confident going in as you are going in. And so the second you sit down, like you pop right back up and you're like, I got to run, I got to train, I got to kickbox, I got to do jujitsu, you know, whatever it is. And, um, and I took that work ethic into my professional career as well. Which again, just not to, not to continue to reiterate, that's probably another way that you differentiated yourself and continue to rise up through the ranks in your, in your sales and leadership position. So let's, let's get into that. Uh, So you, you help amputees live, regular lifestyles. You, you, you give them the opportunity to walk again, to use their hands again, to, to, you know, carry their children. Uh, how did you get into the space of prosthetics and what specifically uh, or how specifically would you define your role? I got into prosthetics almost 10 years ago. It was uh, December of, uh, let's see, 11, 2011. And, um, and they had, uh, a recruiter that had reached out. I was at the time I was in medical sales. I was working in spine. So I worked in the OR and they had a recruiter that reached out, reached out and explained to me the rule. And I just, I thought robotics were really cool. I thought that this industry was really cool. And then the fact that, you know, my, my dad's a vet, my stepdad's a vet, and I, I wanted to work with the, with veterans. And so uh, I ended up doing that with my last row specific to the department of defense and the VA. And I absolutely loved it. Um, and that's where I was like, wow, this is exactly what, what I wanted to come and do. Hmm. Um, I now in, in my role, it's a national role. I still cover the DOD and the VA and absolutely enjoy it. I don't get out in the field near as much as I used to simply because that number one, the pandemic, and then I'm headquartered now. Um, but I just recently asked for more videos coming from the field because they're extremely motivating. And I, I miss the patient interaction that I used to have just on a daily basis. Um, I've seen uh, I, I have videos of, of a, a uh, elderly man dancing with his wife for the first time in 30 years. Um, this stuff, I mean, it's happy tear galore. Um, I've had uh, videos of little like little ones dancing, little ones walking around. Um, and it, to them, it's nothing. It's, it's, this is the way that they, they, um, they grew up. And so they don't, they, they don't put the emotional emphasis that you or I would. Sure. Um, and then, and then seeing these ultra, uh, you know, guys that are wired differently, these soldiers, uh, they come in and they, I mean, for me, like I'm not wired for the military. I, uh, if, if I got injured, I'd be done. I'd be like, all right, well, you know, I'm going home. These got guys those first. Yeah, yeah. Bones for shins. Yeah. My shin splints really, really yeah. acting up right now. Um, but no, these guys are getting their limbs, uh, you know, taken off. I, I train with a guy named Joey Bozic in Dallas, who's just a monster on the mat. He's a trilateral, uh, so he's missing both legs and an arm. 
I've seen this guy uh, beat able-bodied people. He refuses to, to compete against amputees. He competes in able-bodied tournaments and absolute monster on the mat. And he does things that, that will catch you completely off guard. Like he'll spin around and you're like, what just happened? And he's in a different area than you expect, or you'll try to grab legs to pass guard like you would on a, on a able-bodied person. And, and he's, uh, you know, he's spun out and he's on your back or on your side. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, it's, it's, it's truly, I'm truly grateful to be able to work in this industry for yeah. sure. Well, I, I recall, and this was, I mean, I had been speaking for, you know, a year or two when I got the call from you and, and Audubach. And so, you know, my, my material has grown quite a bit. I've learned quite a bit, just like you, you know, you, you practice your craft. You think you're really good when you first start out and then you realize that you're not. Uh, yep. <laughs> I, I just playing back that whole thing. And, and I'm sure as a listener of the Fundamism podcast, any of you listening right now could attribute that same story and scenario with whatever you've tried in your lifetime. So we've all experienced it. I have in speaking, uh, but I, I'll never forget. I was down there at Autobach and we did the happy hour the night before. And I just recall this, this sense of, of, of camaraderie and culture and, you know, everybody who was just super passionate about doing something that was not just great for an organization, but great for society as well. And when I delivered the keynote, um, I just felt so welcomed. And it was just such an amazing experience that you came up to me afterwards and you were like, dude, I mean, thank you very much. I got to ask you, do you know a guy in Lenexa, Kansas, that lost his leg uh, from Ewing sarcoma cancer. His name is Billy Brimblecom. I think he lives relatively close to you. Have you ever met him? Has it never even heard of the guy? So you connected us via cell phone, uh, text message, literally lives uh, a block and a half away. Our kids go to the same school. He's been on the Fundamism podcast. He's besties with Jason Sedasius and does this uh, Thunder Gong um, uh, fundraiser that raises funding for for folks that uh, you know need prosthetics, so it's right in your lane. And you facilitated that whole interaction because Billy is actually one of these individuals that helps tell his story and how Autobach assisted him in getting back to a normal life. So how amazing is it that that that's what you that you said you're passionate about getting back out there and storytelling. And we connected because of your ability and your organization's ability to tell a story. Yeah, man, it was it, it was it's kind of serendipitous because he had spoke. I can't remember if he's, I think he spoke after you, I think. And so he came and we did this right at the time we were doing these Friday where we bring in patients on Fridays and they would talk about their experience. And Billy came in and uh, and spoke and you had, I think been there maybe two months before, maybe a month or two before. Hmm. And I remember leaving his talk and been like, I need, in fact, I think I asked him if he knew you first. And then I was, I set it up right there. I was like, Hey, I really want to connect. You guys are kind of doing, uh, very similar, uh, activities and it'd be great if they converged. Um, so I was so happy to do that. And it's awesome to see that it was, uh, that it worked out. He's a great dude. Our, uh, our kids, they play in the same soccer league. So I see him every Saturday now. And uh, through the pandemic, uh, you know, we all, we all probably found something that 
maybe a vice or something that we didn't typically do or something that potentially, you know, changed our mindset or we looked at things differently and we got into something new, maybe it was card games or whatever. So I had never been big into shoes until I met Billy Brimblecom. And now I have 12 pair, pairs of Jordans and an unhappy wife. So I guess <laughs> I could thank you for that. But, uh, but for me, it's, it's a way to differentiate myself. You know, you see a lot of speakers uh, that are dressed in, you know, suits or, you know, they're dressed to the nines or whatever. Like I like to wear fun shirts and, and colorful shoes and, and showcase how you can be fun and authentic while not just in a personal setting, but professional setting as well. So as we start to wrap up our time together, I'm going to get into a, a quick, uh, you know, fast hitter, uh, probably five questions I'm going to ask you. But before we get there, you manage a sales team very effectively. You, and you partner with them at really creating wonderful experiences and, and con- connecting your customers and clients uh, to real life experience. So as, a, as a, um, an individual that empowers your team to be the best that they possibly can, and in the spirit of our fundamental differentiate yourself, how does one in sales differentiate themselves in the space? So specifically, I'm going out and I'm calling on a client or a prospect or whatever it may be. People hate to be sold, but they love to buy. What are the techniques or, or, or what one tip would you give to your sales staff at a team meeting to say, listen, we're going to do this and it's going to differentiate us in, in the space? Yeah, I, I think it, it comes in just to answer, you know, give a quick background. I think there's two different types of people that get into sales. It's, it's, I knew I was going to be in sales from the time I was in probably high, early high school because it's what my dad did and what my stepdad did. And, and they were very successful with it. Um, and, and I was kind of being coached at that time. Uh, but then there's people that don't know what they want to do in life and they get into sales. And so you have very technical people. You have all these different skill sets in sales. So it's tough to say you do this one thing. But if I had to say do one thing I, I, or a couple things, I would say be consistent because there's so many of those guys that don't know what they want to do in life that aren't consistent because they don't know, they still don't know if this is the right career path for them. Yeah. Um, and the other, the other is just create value and they could be the same, but create value. Um, don't, don't send somebody, you know, like the, I think the big, the big thing that pops up is how do I follow up with this person without being annoying or, um, it, or pestering them. And it's creating value in that follow-up, creating value in everything that you do, every interaction that you have, creating value. Because you have that one short transaction where you don't and, and you just wasted time. And so don't waste people's time. Create value on every interaction. And I would say that's a pretty sick formula to, uh, to succeed. I agree. I, uh, I, I love that, just the word of value. And I think oftentimes, I, I don't know truly and honestly, if everybody understands what value actually means, because when you say create value, I know a lot of sales folks out there. I I mean, I've been in the consulting industry. I obviously speak a lot. Um, When you say create value, oftentimes individuals work really, really hard to create value. And they do so by selling what they perceive to be valuable. Instead of taking a step back, showing a genuine interest in others, asking all the questions in the world. And then you're creating, you're not creating the value at which point you're selling the value that they created in themselves back to them. All you're doing is saying, listen, you just told me 
that you want to be able to, you know, if you're selling directly to a customer that needs a, a prosthetic, you told me that you want to dance again. You know, you, you told me about that one time years ago where you got the opportunity to dance with your daughter at her wedding as, as tears streamed down your face. Listen, I'm not going to say it's something that you don't want or don't need, but I got to tell you, we have an opportunity for you to create more of those magnificent, memorable moments with your daughter. I'm not, I'm not selling anything now. I am literally solidifying the value that they, they expose to me. So dude, I, I love everything that you said uh, as it relates to work ethic, um, grit, uh, uh, toxically ambitious. You're a very smart fellow, man. I remember coming into this, you were like, man, I, I hope I, I hope I find or create value some way to your listeners. And uh, you did to me, I can tell you that. So let's start to wrap up our time together with some quick hitters. You wrestle with the boys. I'm wearing uh, The Rock and Stone Cold Steve Austin on my shirt. Who's your favorite wrestler of all time? One, two, three kid. The one, two, three kid. This is yeah. I, I'm, Razor, I'm, Razor Ramon is up there. Yes. Razor Ramon is up there, but one, two, three kid was the he did all the flips and stuff. I don't know. He wasn't around for very very long. Yeah. But and then uh, Tatanka. Tatanka has got to be up there as well. Yeah. Like I still do the Tatanka run around the house. Uh, the uh, I, I would say those are my three favorite that come to mind. Dude, I got to go educate myself. I've never even heard of the one, two, three kid. Oh yeah, he's so, legit. But here's a fun little takeaway. I don't know if you knew this, but John and I were at Up Down uh, the other day playing some pinball, and at Up Down, it's kind of a throwback arcade. They play all these old school WWE, WWF. A WC, like all that stuff is on TV. And this guy's wrestling and he's wrestling um, a Ricky the Dragon Steamboat in his uh, older years, more tenured years. And this gentleman looks like Chris Jericho. And I'm like, is that Chris Jericho? And uh, the, the bartender goes, I-, I got a guy that knows every single wrestler. Let me, let me go ask him. John Googles the match and he finds out that this gentleman with long flowing blonde hair is none other than Stone Cold Steve Austin. Did you know that Stone Cold Steve Austin had beautiful long blonde hair and at one point in time wrestled with it? No. Exactly. I, I didn't, didn't know. I got some Googling to do too. <laughs> Favorite comedy movie? Oh my gosh, that's tough, man. Because I could I could say 80s, 90s, and, and now. But I... I got it old school is way up there. Uh, like, but genres, you could go Christmas vacation, vacation. I'm introducing my sons to like a lot of the, the three amigos and like all the old classics. Yeah. But yeah, I would say uh, old school wedding crashers and that th- those movies are awesome. Watching, judging, look at the baby, look at the baby. Uh, so the jerk quality flick recently oh, yeah. old school. I, I caught up with again. Um, Underrated flick that doesn't get talked about enough, Fletch. If you've seen Fletch or haven't seen Fletch in a long time, uh, I'm going to catch up on it. I'd love to text exchange our experience together. Yeah, I'll check it out. Favorite professional sports team? Oh, man, you know this. Uh, the Kansas City Chiefs. I mean, I, I have a Chiefs room uh, that, that I'm working on. It's about – I got like a, a half wall that's just – looks like an old sports bar. And, uh, and I'm going to blow up some pictures of, of John and I, Andy and I. we got to make it to a game. We've been talking about it for a while. Yeah. I, think, uh, I think it's October we play in, in Las Vegas. And John and I have had our eyes on that one. So 
we so needed, we needed I, to discuss for sure. I might, uh, I might come out there because I still have a, a winning ticket uh, for when uh, the year that Mahomes won MVP, uh, I bet $100 on the Chiefs winning the AFC West, the AFC Championship, and the Super Bowl. Uh, I, of course, lost the latter two, but won the AFC West. So there it stands, $350 in my drawer that's been there for two or three years. That'll pay for my plane ticket. Let's go spend that. Let's go spend it. All right. Most memorable moment as a Chiefs fan. Um. Oh, my gosh. I would say, I'm trying to think. Uh, Derek Thomas, was it six sacks? Mm-hmm. Seven, right? Six, uh, was it seven? And, and that was against – was that uh, Jeff – What's his name for the Raiders? Uh, no, it was Seattle, right? Oh, you're right. It was uh, Craig. David, Daniel, David Craig. Craig? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 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 I think it was Derek Seth. Thomas, man. That was, yeah, he was great. Like, just, yeah. yeah. All right. Last question, man. Then you're off the hot seat. Uh, you're an individual that takes great pride in what you do, and you do it because you're passionate about it, and it brings – it brings goodness to all those that get the opportunity to not just work with you, but that you get to, you know, sell value to or whatever it may be. What's the most gratifying moment in your professional career? Dude, the uh, look at your face thinking about, oh God, like, like, <laughs> it's, it's so hard. I mean, so the most gratifying thing is seeing someone that didn't think they can do something, do it like, and, and then you, and you coaching them. Yeah. And, uh, and there's so many moments like that, uh, that I can think of, uh, right now. Um, the, I, I would say it, it's some of the patient interactions that I've had. There's been, uh, there was a kid that lost his hip, uh, up in Oklahoma that, that actually dove in after his buddy in a grain auger and he lost his hip saving his buddy. And he was going through some really, really tough times and he made it out. I connected with him about, uh, shoot, two years after the initial uh, accident. And uh, he, he was in great spirits and there was a lot of concern around it. So that was one interaction that I, that I always, uh, that I always remember. Um, and there's a few other ones that are, that uh, I would say, uh, we had some even tiny, tiny bit of influence within and, and they worked out really well for people. So, um, but that's the one that comes to mind. Man, I can't help but hear that story and, and how incredible and magnificent it is. And again, attach it to, you know, perspective of whatever challenge we're facing in any given day. Right. And uh, that's the amazing part of what, what you do. And, uh, you know, it takes us back to the fundamental and differentiating yourself. Like why be a second rate everybody else when you could be a first rate you, uh, whether it's you taking such great pride in work and what you do that you have a, a tenacious work ethic and you show a genuine interest in others, or uh, you can no longer do what you love to do as well as you once were able to do. So you had to differentiate your, differentiate your thinking and your, in yourself in that space to still create and find value as well. Uh, from the bottom of my heart, Brian, I thank you for being on here. You killed it. Any final last words, my friend? No, Paul, thanks for what you do, man. I enjoy the show uh, and I'm honored to be on here. And uh, you have a, such a unique perspective on things. I love it. Keep doing what you're doing, man. My guy. Well, uh, Vegas, we're Vegas bound, baby. You and I, memories will be created. So to you, the Fundamism Podcast listener, we couldn't be whatever the hell we are without you. So we greatly appreciate your support. Hey, stop trying to be like everybody else. 
you see my silly shirts, you see my bow ties, you see the way that I carry myself. I do it because it's fun. I do it because when you see it, you don't think, oh, I've seen that before. You think that guy is borderline crazy. And you know what? I am because I accept it and it's awesome to me. So differentiate yourself, go out, have some fun, create some fun in the lives of others until I see you on the flip side. Be safe, smile often, have fun and deuces.